0: Amen. So the purpose of this passage in Mark chapter 10 is to correct an easy divorce mentality by going back to God's creation of marriage and then pursuing obedience to God in that. So the Pharisees are going to come, as we see in just a minute, and they have this easy divorce mentality and Jesus flips the script on them and says, we need to look at God's creation of marriage and pursue God's perspective of it. So the big idea simply for this morning's sermon is follow Jesus into your marriage. This section in chapters 8, 9, and 10 are about discipleship. Jesus has made the three predictions on how he's going to go to the cross. And then after those three predictions, he is teaching people how to follow him. So this is an area where Christians follow Jesus. We follow him into our relationships. We follow him into marriage. So in our passage, the subjects of divorce and marriage are presented. Divorce comes up first by the Pharisees, and then Jesus rightly turns their attention away from focusing on divorce to focusing on how God would have them live in marriage. So let's get started in our text this morning with point number one, which is verses one through five, which is beware of a hardened heart. Beware of a hardened heart. Now in verse one, we see Jesus's ministry. He is heading south from Galilee, heading down into Judea. Here, we believe he crosses the Jordan River, so he's on the east side of the Jordan River. That'll be important in just a moment. And we are going to have more Gentiles in this area, Jews as well, but there will be Gentiles in this area. The crowds are gathering. When the crowds gather, Jesus makes the most of that, those opportunities. It says in verse 1 that he taught them. Okay, moving on to verse 2. This is where the tension and the antagonism from the Pharisees start. The Pharisees come up to where Jesus is, and they ask him a question, and we see in verse two that the motive of their question is to test him. So right off the bat, we know that the Pharisees are interacting with Jesus on an evil or an ill, uh, with an ill motive. They're hoping to ruin Jesus's ministry. Their question is going to be about divorce. So you see it at the end of verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now keep in mind that this was a test that they were giving him. How is it that this is a test? Well, two possibilities. The first possibility is the region in which Jesus is located right now. Remember, he's east of the Jordan. And just by way of memory, earlier in Mark we know that John the Baptist was beheaded. John the Baptist was beheaded by a man named Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias. Well, guess who happens to be ruling this area that Jesus is located in right now? It's Herod Antipas. If you don't know the story, here is how John the Baptist was beheaded. He was speaking out publicly of Herod's marriage to Herodias, saying that it was unlawful because they had divorced their partners and come together in marriage. And Herod had let it slide for a while. Herodias, she couldn't stand it. And long story short, she requested that his head be served up on a platter and it worked. So here's Jesus in the same region where Herod is, and you can imagine the Pharisees cooking up a plan. Hmm, how can we ruin his ministry? Maybe we can have it stop short by going to where he is in Herod's region and getting him to speak publicly about divorce. So that could be one motive or one possibility for this being a test. The second possibility for this is to lure Jesus into a debate that was going on among the Pharisees. Within the Pharisees, there were two schools. The Pharisees who followed Rabbi Shammai, and then the other school who followed Rabbi Hillel. Shammai was a very conservative school. Divorce was a topic that was debated among these two schools. Shammai said... Divorce is only allowed on the grounds of adultery, nothing else. Everything else is off the table. Hillel came along and he led a more liberal school of thought on divorce. And he said that divorce is allowed for any indecency to the point that we find in ancient writings where if a wife dropped a dish and it shattered and the Pharisee said, that's an indecency. Well, she's divorced. He's out. Or, actually, if she burnt his breakfast, that was an indecency. And she could, he could file for divorce and send her away. Now, I heard one chuckle. It's okay for you to chuckle at that absurdity. So, here are the Pharisees who have sparred back and forth with this. And they have gone in such a way where they can make others look foolish with their answers and jump back and forth between the schools of thought. And so the whole point in asking this question is motivated out of an evil heart to minimize or ruin Jesus' credibility. Now, one more thing. The Pharisees do appeal to the law. They appeal to Moses very often. And so Jesus enters the arena, he's not going to shy away from this question, he's going to spar with them, and one of the ways that he spars with them is to return a question that they've had with a question back to them. So in verse 3, he answers them, well, what did Moses command you? So here's the arena that he's willing to go to. If we're going to debate about this, we're going to debate about it on the grounds of scripture, which is where we should always go with these kinds of topics. And they were ready for that because the Pharisees were experts in the law. So they respond back in verse 4 saying this, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, where are they appealing when they say Moses allowed a certificate of divorce? That language is specific, and it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Here's the passage in the Torah, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because, and here's the phrase, he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce. The Pharisees have just quoted that. And puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. Verse 2 and 3 has some other qualifications. But it goes on to say that if she marries another man and he dies or divorces her. Now we pick it up in verse 4. Her husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. All right. so a few things about this. You see the phrase, any indecency. Those were interpreted very loosely. And again, there was the Shammai school, there was the Hillel school. Some indecency, some think it means adultery. But other portions of the law deal with adultery. In fact, adultery was punishable by death, not by divorce. The Pharisees had just taken that phrase any indecency and they had wrangled it to the point where they arrived at their own convenient conclusions on how they could move in and out of marriage. Now when you look at that Deuteronomy 24 the question in our minds is what is going on here? Because it seems like it's treating women in a very belittling view where a man can come along and say, hmm, today I have found an indecency in you, here is a certificate of divorce, I'm on to my next marriage. So we do some searching around. I went to the commentaries for Deuteronomy and one commentary, Ajith Fernando, some of you may recognize that name, he writes this and I didn't put it up on the screen for you so just listen. He says, at first, it may seem that the wife is being given shoddy treatment here. But actually, this law is intended to protect her. Well, why is that? In those days, marriages and divorces were not performed by government authorities. Well, How are they performed? They were domestic matters. And all that the husband needed to do was to tell his wife he was divorcing her. The Bible brought in laws to protect the wife, which is what the certificate of divorce does. Without something in writing that she was divorced, she would be accused of adultery if she marries again. This law actually provided guideposts for divorce. It forces the man to think more seriously before divorcing of the implications of divorcing his wife. Okay, so two things we need to recognize here. Number one is, we don't know exactly what any indecency means in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Moses didn't explain it. Perhaps Moses explained it orally to Israel at the time. There are suggestions that mean it's not adultery, but maybe other forms of sexual immorality. We don't know. But what we do know is that the law here was intended to slow down those who were hasty to file for divorce and in fact it made it harder because instead of it being a domestic matter in those days where a husband could just give his wife the boot and say you're out it slowed the process down and it became a legal matter as you can see they were missing the whole point of the passage in Deuteronomy 24 when they say, Moses just gave us a certificate of divorce. They have answered Jesus' question. They have said that Moses allowed us, but they're not seeing the reason behind it. All right, so what is Jesus going to say to their response that Moses allowed us to write a certificate of divorce? Well, in verse 5, he makes what is kind of like a groundbreaking statement in this discussion. He says that this commandment in the law was given to Israel for a reason. What's the reason for why the commandment allowing for a certificate of divorce was given in Deuteronomy 24? Yes, it's for the protection of women, but it was there because of and here's where Jesus drops the bomb on them the hardness of your hearts. What a verdict. Here's the truth that Jesus is pointing them back to. If you're going to argue from Deuteronomy chapter 24 that you have grounds for divorce, Jesus is saying we have to go one step deeper than that. As Jesus always does, he's not just interested in what's taking place on the surface. He is interested in what's taking place in the heart. And so here he can point to the Pharisees and say, oh, this law is here, but it's here for what reason? Not because you are walking in moral superiority. It's here because we have an issue, and the issue is the hardness of hearts. So divorce was a provision in the law of Moses, but it was a provision because of sin. And that's why divorce happens. It's the outgrowth or fruit of either one or both spouses having a hardened heart. Which means divorce is not the intention of God for marriages. It's a concession that's in the law because of mankind's sinfulness. So why did God include it? He included it because of the sinful hearts that were present. Who had the hardened hearts in the marriages? It doesn't really explain, but Jesus puts the onus on the Pharisees here. We do know that when a divorce was happening, one or both of the spouses were approaching it because of a wrong heart. So when you think about it up to Jesus' point, when you think about divorce, you know that it's happening because of a sinful heart. Now, let's just park there for a moment. What would be some signs of hardened hearts among us today? Marriages are not always easy. I read this last week that dating, what dating does is it it sort of accentuates our similarities. And people come together and they're like, oh, we have this in common, we like this. And then you get into marriage and marriage accentuates our differences. That's where the differences start to pop up very clearly. Oh, I never knew this about you. Or, oh, I never realized that this is how you respond in those situations. And you get into a marriage, and it's very easy for somebody to say, I do on the day of marriage, and then years later, a time later, look back and say, oh, my heart is not where it was on the day that I got married. Somewhere along the line, the heart hardens What could be some signs of some hardening of hearts even today? Well, here are some signs if you're thinking this way. Number one, thinking that I deserve a more accomplished spouse. Maybe your spouse is a disappointment to you. You had hoped that your spouse would be a successful, accomplishing individual, and he or she turns out to be nothing like that. You look around and you see other marriages where that spouse really took off, and you think, Man, I deserve someone like him or her as my spouse. My spouse is a disappointment. Second, thinking I deserve a more sexual person. Maybe your spouse doesn't have the same kind of drive that you have and you believe that someone else out there would give you more and if you just had more, you'd be a happier person. It's the reflection of a hardened heart. There's the indicator of a hardened heart by the absence of giving affection. Your heart might be hardened towards your spouse if you neglect to love your spouse because other importance or other pursuits have become more important to you. Another sign of a hardened heart, words of hurtful hurtful sarcasm. Do you find yourself tearing down your spouse with words, wanting to demoralize Or argue with him or her that's the overflow of a sinful hardened heart another one can be hang-ups about the past you're into marriage and something happened in the past before marriage after marriage and you feel worthless or you feel insecure or you just can't let it go and a heart is hardening these are the seeds practical seeds of a hardening heart divorce doesn't come out of nowhere Jesus says it comes into existence because seeds have been planted in people's hearts and it's hardening your heart. And you say, that's where I am. I feel that struggle. I I feel those thoughts and some of what you said or something else of what is going on in my marriage and I can see where seeds have been planted in my heart and I have to do battle regularly. What can be my prayer? Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are my strength and my redeemer for marriage. So what Jesus is doing here in the first five verses is pointing out that divorce takes place because a hardened heart is present. But then Jesus moves away from the negative divorce to speak on the positive of marriage. So point number two, we're just going to label this a spirit-led heart. A hardened heart on the front end leads to divorce, but let's talk about a spirit-led heart. How does Jesus unpack the positive aspects of marriage? He does so with what we'll look at as three separate statements that go back to the very foundation of marriage. Jesus is going to redirect their thoughts away from the dissolution, the divorce, to God's intention for marriage. Three statements. In verse 6, Jesus shares the beginning step of God's creation for marriage. He says in verse six, <clears throat> "Hardness of heart led to divorce, but, on the contrast, or on the contrary, from the beginning of, of creation, God made them male and female." So now he's going to build his argument for marriage. And he starts back in Genesis 1:27. Very beginning. God created man and woman. He created them male and female. These were the building blocks of marriage. He would give gender to each one. He would give sex to each one, male and female here. And as an aside, we realize that the only authority for our gender is God. It's not our feelings. It's not what a book says. It's what God says. And God has so designed you with billions of cells that serve as eyewitnesses, XX or XY, that scream out, this is how God designed you, male or female. These are the building blocks, but what God is going to do with us as individuals, men or women, is bring them together in marriage now. So here's the starting block. I've created male and female. So you're either a man or a woman this morning. And now he goes on to a second statement after that. He doesn't leave that hanging. Verse seven. Therefore, a man, that is the male from verse six, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. All right, here's the man, here's the woman. What's the responsibility that is given to the man? He is to leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. What does this mean now? For marriage, it means that his primary earthly relationship, his primary loyalty is no longer with his family. Instead, his primary earthly relationship, his primary loyalty is to his wife whom he holds fast to. And when you look at that language of holding fast, it's covenant language where two parties are coming together. And he is saying, I am entering into a covenant and my stipulations, my agreement in this covenant is I am going to hold fast to the female, to the woman whom God has brought me to. So just looking at this holding fast covenant language so that you can see it in other places. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 20 says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and look at the language, you shall hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Okay, so here's what Moses is coming to Israel, and he's like, you, Israel, you're entering into a covenant with God. Don't go after any other idols. Instead, hold fast to the one true God. Joshua chapter 22, verse 5 <clears throat> Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him, hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Over and over again, you see this imagery of holding fast in the Old Testament being represented or being given to Israel concerning their relationship with God. Hold fast to God. Don't go to other gods. Don't commit spiritual adultery. Hold fast to the one true God. And this is where Jesus presses in further and starts tearing down the Pharisees' affinity for divorce, especially as he related it to the men and those Pharisees being men there. They're hearing him say, God created me as a man and God commanded me to leave and to cleave, to hold fast to my wife and to be in covenant with her. So very practically, husbands, in your marriage, God has given you specific marching orders as to how you view your wife. Your duty, your marching orders, especially men, is to hold fast, to cling to her relationally. You cherish her, you sacrifice for her, you serve her, you honor her. Some of this language can be sort of explained by Peter in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. A husband who holds fast to his wife is going to show her that she matters more to him. He's going to honor her. So this means that you have to get good at disappointing other people and setting aside your own pursuits that you would ordinarily hold fast to and hold fast to your marriage. So let me give you some practicals in terms of illustrations. I haven't always done well with this. All right, so let me tell you where I haven't done well. I remember when the kids were young and I came home and it was busy in the house and chaotic in the house and there was probably the smell of a dirty diaper somewhere in the house it was just kind of that day and at the same time a friend unknowing of what was going on in our four walls had asked me to come over and head out on the river with kayaks. Now, considering our marriage and considering everything that was going on with the kids, I should have, in that moment, set aside my friend and the kayaks and the moment on the river to hold fast to my wife and the responsibilities that were at home. I should have told the friend, sorry, I can't hold fast to you right now, in so many words, I have to hold fast to my wife. This is more important. So guys, if you're leaving your wife hanging because you have your kayak moments and your wife is sitting there saying, I need you to hold fast to me, pursue her. Another time, I remember we were heading down to Indianapolis. Chris was going to attend a women's conference downtown at the convention center, and so we're heading right down. If you've been downtown Indianapolis... You know that little circle that's there, and I believe it's on the south side of town is where the conference center is. Well, we were running late. I had missed a turn. I don't know what was going on. So, you know, all these ingredients weren't going well for us. And I can't find the construction, or I can't find the convention center, or I can't find a way to get to it easily. That's a better way of saying it. So I remember that it was about two blocks that way, But between me and the convention center, as I'm driving the car, is a construction zone where all these guys are out there doing that thing. And if I remember right, I think the sidewalk had sort of the the plywood and those metal bars. Like, it's all messed up down there. And there's several thousand women over at the convention center a couple blocks away. And I remember pulling up to an intersection and saying, babe, it's two blocks down there, and we're looking there, and they're like, there's the construction. And I look back on it, and I I don't know if it was as bad as this, but I feel like I might as well have just been driving 30 miles an hour, open the door, give her the boot, and say, go get it, you know? (laughs) I could have gone around blocks and detours and that kind of thing. I wasn't holding fast to her and honoring her and dwelling with her. And yet, men... I know it's a story, but there's so many parallels where, okay, like, let her go, let her, you know, go, go do thing. not holding fast. Okay, so let me share some good things that I'll share in humility that I hope will be helpful examples. I'm in seminary and full-time school, full-time job, single, and go to church service in the morning, afternoons there was basketball so I have two hours of basketball and that was kind of my me time so I get married and it was one of those times where I got it right I don't need the me time I'm still working full-time I'm still taking classes full-time that can be given up I can let go of this over here in order to hold fast to my wife more recently This might be helpful, maybe not. Um, Went to a high school football game with several of you, and the stands were starting to fill up. And I was supposed to be down on the southern end of the stadium to help out with my fifth and sixth grade football flag football team, because we're going to make a tunnel and welcome all the players onto the field. Well, the stands are filling up, and we're down at the base of the stands, and there's Chris and there's the kids, and. I'm thinking, Chris is strong enough to go up into those bleachers and find a place for a long row of us, or, no, I should do that. I should hold fast to my wife, get her up the bleachers with the kids and our friends, find a row, be seated, and then go and take off. There are everyday practicalities when it comes to keeping the covenant of marriage, it works itself out with practicalities on an everyday level from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep of holding fast to your wife. I was watching Joni Erikson Tada on a video recently and her husband Ken was on there. If you don't know, Joni Erikson Tada is very handicapped, severe disabilities, and they were being very honest about the challenges that they face in marriage. He confessed confess that sometimes his attitude is wrong and recently he saw selfishness and just prayed God help me and the idea was he was not holding fast to his wife he was holding fast to his own convenience his own pleasure and they both testified that after praying together God changed his attitude from being selfish to being serving so many times Holding fast to your wife, holding fast to your spouse will mean that you are choosing to serve her above yourself. And when you think about this, Paul is going to unpack this later on in Ephesians. We're not going to go there. But we're going to see a Savior who comes and pursues a bride. Here's Christ who comes and gives himself up so that he can hold fast to the bride and love the bride and cherish the bride. And so that's our example in marriage, Christ and the church. Jesus makes kind of a third little, um, I'm not to the third statement, but just a, a third portion of this second statement where he says, the two shall become one flesh. So he says earlier, a man shall leave his father and his mother. They shall, he shall hold fast to his wife. And then the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is God bringing two individuals together. Their lives blending together and being made one flesh. There's solidarity here. It's like two sheets of paper being glued together right now. They they come together and they stick. And when divorce happens, or even when death happens, it doesn't come apart cleanly. Part of you is torn away as well. So there's oneness. All right, now. Let's go to the third statement. And um, the third statement is in verse nine, where he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. All right, so in this third statement, you're going to notice two things. You're going to notice God's sovereignty and man's responsibility with this. How does marriage happen? It doesn't happen by sex. It doesn't even happen by a pastor or a judge saying something at the front of an auditorium or in a courthouse. Marriage happens because God sovereignly brings people together. God is the one who makes marriage. So I was doing some premarital counseling with a couple and one of the individuals asked the question, it feels strange to me. I go up to the front of an auditorium as a single person, and then I walk to the back and I'm married? How am I married? The way that we're married is not simply by going through rituals. The the answer is right here. We're married because God joins us together. God is the one who brings this two into one. It's the work of God. But notice, here's man's responsibility. What God has joined together, let not man separate And again, he's speaking to the Pharisees who are easy come, easy go. Any indecency, burnt my toast. She's gone. And Jesus is saying, no, follow God into your marriage. You're not there to separate your marriage. So we could say that God has created male and female, men and women for marriage. God has created men and women to come together in marriage. And now we see that God has created men and women to stay in marriage. And we're responsible. That's our task. That's our discipleship. So in all of this, we're following Jesus into marriage. We're disciples of Christ who see marriage from start to finish as the creation of God and as a responsibility from God that we enter into. You have to look at your marriage as an assignment from God or as a mission from God that you're following him into. Okay, verses 10 through 12. Point number three, divorce and remarriage. As is often the case, disciples don't understand everything that Jesus says. So in verse 10, it says, In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So apparently they're removed from where they were before. Jesus says this. He says, Whoever divorces his wife and and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against her previous husband. Now, some of you are asking the question: whoa, whoa, whoa! It seems like something's missing there. I feel like I've heard Jesus say this before, but with something more. You're thinking about Matthew's gospel. Jesus's words in Matthew's gospel includes this: Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. So, yes, there is an exception clause in Matthew's gospel, and then. Paul has this statement in 1 Corinthians 7, if an unbeliever separates, let it be so. All right, but why didn't Mark include that? Mark's point is not to explore the exception clause. Mark's point is to speak to those who in their minds and hearts are like the Pharisees. He's addressing the individual who is saying, I'm tired of my spouse and I just want to get out. Or my spouse disappoints me and I'm done with marriage. I just want to get out. And Jesus says, let's get to the heart of the issue. You'll be committing the sin of adultery if you do that. If you're looking to get out and marry again, just because this is an inconvenience, that's adultery. But we're a church family. And in our church family, there are folks who have been divorced and remarried. And it wouldn't fit the exception clause. So, did you commit adultery? Yes, you did. What should you do? Well, if you have not already, confess that sin to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive you, and then you stay in your marriage, and you thrive in your marriage, and you follow God in this marriage. On the flip side, you might be sitting there saying, hmm, that's all I need to do? I'm in this one, I'm not content, I wanna get out, and Nate's going to say, ask for forgiveness and move forward. Well, your heart is hardened like the Pharisee. Divorce, get remarried, ask God for forgiveness. You're the Pharisee. God's speaking to you. Don't leave your marriage. Don't separate. So what can we take away from this section in Mark? Followers of Jesus Christ believe that God sovereignly brings two people together in marriage. And in that marriage, we follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, we see that we are going to be pursuing our spouse We're going to be pursuing our spouse and reflecting the picture of Christ and the church. We're going to hold fast to one another. We're going to be proactive in loving our spouse and honoring the Lord. Why? Because we're followers of Jesus, we're committed to him. We follow him all the way to the end. So when we look at marriage, marriage is not about romance. Marriage is not about butterflies. Marriage is about following Jesus. Second, we're a church family. And one author wrote it this way. Mingle the call to obedience with the tears of compassion. What does he mean by that? So we preach on staying faithful in marriage. And yet we have brothers and sisters who have gone through divorce. And so we mingle the call with obedience, of obedience, stay in your marriage with the tears of compassion. Some folks have gone through some really hard times in the past. Many Christians have gone through divorce. Some have been the primary offender, others have been the primary victim. But what's done is done. The clock can't go backwards. So many would do it differently if they could. You'd rewind time You'd highlight what happened in the future, you'd delete it, and you'd go back and you'd say, I just need to obey the Lord. But that's not the case right now. We can't rewind the clock. And so as Christian brothers and sisters, we don't go around labeling people with a D over top of their heads. We go around looking at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and we need to love and encourage one another and let the grace of God saturate our relationships with one another. So we follow Jesus, we pursue obedience, we have tears of, comp- of compassion. And just in closing, we treat our marriages, we interact with our marriages, we handle our marriages as a gift from God, and we glorify him in them. We follow Jesus into our marriages this week. Let's pray.